0: The second Bible reading is from Luke thirteen, one to 5. Luke 13, to 5. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish.
1: Well, good evening. Let me add my welcome to Matt's. Uh, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting or new, it's great to have you with us. We're working through these big questions, as you've heard. We're looking at uh, quite a complicated and um, harrowing question at time the issue of suffering. Um, we're going to have a question time um, afterwards, so if you do have any questions that come out of tonight, it's a huge topic And in some ways, we'll just be skating over the surface. Um, So if you've got a question, there'll be a number that come up on the screen. You can text that, and we'll try and answer some of those questions um, afterwards. So keep that in mind. Let me pray for us now and ask that God will help us as we seek to understand this big topic. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the freedom to gather like this tonight. Uh, We thank you that you are a speaking God who does not leave us in the dark, but rather reveals your plans and purposes for this world, and answer some of the big questions for us, uh, clearly in your word. We pray that you might help us as we grapple uh, with this difficult uh, subject of suffering of which we see so much in our world. Uh, Give us ears to hear and minds to understand, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In her book, 50 Facts That Should Change the World, Jessica Williams gives a summary of what's going on in our planet at this time. She mentions that one in five of the world's people go hungry every day. A third of the world's population is affected by war right now. Landmines, they kill or maim at least one person every hour. There are 27 million slaves still in the world today. 120,000 women and young girls are trafficked into Western Europe alone each year. The industry of drugs, it's the world's largest industry, illegal drugs wreaking havoc across countless lives. It's worth over $400 billion a year. You know, there's 150 countries in the world that have torture as part of their policing. There are over 30 million people who are HIV positive in Africa alone. And that's just scratching the surface with some of what's happening I guess we've seen even in the past few months here in Australia, as we've watched our TV screens, considered things in our own country, let alone around the world, that there's so much going on. Uh, We've seen the Cyclone Debbie that devastated the Sundays and then caused huge flooding in southern Queensland and northern New South Wales. But outside of Australia, there have been terrorist attacks, of course, which often grab the headlines in the news. I don't know if you're aware, but there have been 100 terrorist attacks just this year. We perhaps have only been hit by the three in Europe that got more coverage recently in Paris and Stockholm and London. On top of that, there's been a drought ravaging Somalia and countries around there, that area in Africa. Over 6 million people are facing food shortages, and they have been since February. There's continuing fighting, of course, in so many countries around the world. We hear a lot about Afghanistan and northern Iraq and Syria, And of course, in Syria, there's even been a chemical attack on civilians this year. And in addition to all of that, we have North Korea uh, threatening nuclear war at this time. Uh, Cyclones, floods, famines, terrorism, wars. There is just so much. The daily suffering across the world is so widespread and so constant that it's just numbing. We can't really take it in and process it, let alone feel compassion, as we should, towards The many millions of people that are suffering at this moment, people are completely distraught every day as they deal with the often immense suffering of this life. And I think this pain leads to a natural question that has been asked through the centuries by humanity, that pressing question for so many people, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there suffering? Well, that's our big question that we're going to consider tonight. Well, what I want to do for you is unpack three possible answers to that question. Look at it from different viewpoints. So the first answer to that question uh, that atheists will offer you is this. There is no reason for suffering. There's no ultimate reason for suffering. Now, Richard Dawkins, that world-renowned uh, English atheist, summarizes such a view in his 2004 book called The Devil's Chaplain. He writes this. Blindness to suffering is an inherent consequence of natural selection. That is the evolutionary process. Nature is neither kind nor cruel, but indifferent. This is one of the hardest lessons for humans to learn. We cannot admit that things might be neither good nor evil, neither cruel nor kind, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. You see, from an atheist's viewpoint, uh, the long pain of human evolution was set in, mon- in motion by chance alone, and so there's no real reason for suffering as such. Suffering is meaningless, just as a struggle against evil is meaningless under such an outlook. You now, everything in the atheist world begins, in theory, and ends in randomness and chance. And so, for some centuries now, they've been quite consistent in saying these things. Uh, the atheist. Friedrich Nietzsche argued it's wishful thinking to hold that reason can confer meaning on life or on any of its suffering. Of course, as you drill down in the day-to-day struggles that we all face, an atheist would say to you, as they often do in their blogs and sites, well, you know, there's simple scientific answers for things happening. You know, you got that cancer because a gene mutated in your body. We can explain it will acknowledge that there are some things that they don't know, but their argument is in the long run, humans will solve most of the problems of suffering as science advances. And so just use the knowledge that you have to receive whatever treatment you can, reduce the suffering, but there's no real reason to it, end of story. But you see, it's rarely the end of the story. Um, Often, they're quick to point out that the problem of suffering... Is a problem for religious believers, but not for atheists. You see, it works like this. As the Sydney writer and speaker John Dixon notes in his book, If I Were God, I'd End All the Pain, he points out many non believers cannot reconcile the existence of a loving, all powerful God with the suffering of this world. They see in this dilemma a so called proof that the God of the Bible just cannot exist. Well, philosopher J.L. Mackie is one of many who's made his case against the God of the Bible's existence. His book's called The Miracle of Theism. He states the problem this way. If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil and suffering. But because there is much unjustifiable pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God cannot exist. However, it's interesting You know, the majority of philosophers in the last couple of decades, whether they're Christian or indeed atheist, even, point out that this argument is somewhat bankrupt. Because tucked away within there is an assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil. There's a hidden premise to it, though. See, the premise is that if suffering appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. You know, the reasoning is uh, somewhat flawed or fallacious here. Just because you or I can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be a good reason. In fact, that topic has been taken up by various people. There was an article um, in The Age, the Melbourne newspaper, in 2010 by a guy called Christopher Cordner. He's an associate professor at Melbourne University, uh, he's not a Christian, he's an agnostic, uh, but he, he takes exception to those atheists that want to simply prove that God can't exist on some basis, uh, some argument uh, of suffering as its basis. He states it this way, "'What is such a person saying? You know, "'If we're to live like Hansel and Gretel "'in a house that we can bite bits off and eat, "'or if we were to live in the Garden of Eden, "'then we'll believe that there's a God?' See, as Christopher, as as Timothy Keller points out in his book, The Reason for God, lurking within this scepticism is actually enormous faith, enormous faith in our finite minds that we have enough knowledge to judge whether there is a good reason or any purpose in suffering. As Keller argues, this is blind faith of a high order See, we don't need to reject the existence of an all-powerful, loving God because of the suffering in the world. Rather, what we need to grasp is this, that God must have purposes which he is able to achieve as God for permitting suffering. See, sometimes in hindsight, we can see how suffering has been used to a loving purpose. Uh, My wife Christine and I, in 2002, had the joy of learning that we were expecting our first child. And it was all we could do in our excitement to wait till she was nearly 12 weeks pregnant to ring all our family and friends and share the good news that we were expecting that year in September. But only a week later, just over 13 weeks, Christine miscarried that child. And then we had the really difficult task of not only coming to terms with our own loss, but then ringing all those same people and saying, well, oh, we're no longer expecting. Now, we were devastated at the time. We could see no good reason why God had allowed that to happen. But our sorrow is not unique. I mean, 70,000 babies are still born or miscarried in Australia every year. One in four pregnancies end in such sorrow. So we weren't alone at all. What we could see... Was that although we couldn't work out what was happening, in the aftermath we realized that miscarriage is a sorrow, is a pain that's not shared very often, though many people are wanting to share it. There's so many that have experienced it. And we've found, having gone through that, that we've had many opportunities that God has given us to comfort and encourage others who have likewise gone through that situation. See, at the time we could see no purpose. What is God doing here? And yet in hindsight now as we look back we can see God's hand even in that. And indeed he has blessed us with three children in the aftermath of that as well for which we give great thanks. You see the issue is the God of the Bible does not promise a life free of suffering and then fail to deliver. In fact the Bible promises the opposite. One example, Psalm 90 verse 10. We read, The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. I mean, no one has to tell you that human life is brief, that it is overshadowed by our frailty, our suffering. The Bible's not pessimistic, it's realistic about this. And so suffering in life is not an unexpected interruption to our perfection, rather it's the normal, inescapable lot of everybody. I think strangely though, despite all the disastrous events of this (laughs) last few months, despite our own experiences of life and the ups and downs we face, it's a countercultural way to think, isn't it, that suffering is the norm. And I think that's because our society has so trained us, especially in rich countries like Australia, to think that we're in control of everything. We even convince ourselves at times that we're in control of our environment, when of course nothing could be further from the truth. And so the result is we expect that life will pan out in an ideal way for us and then we're shocked when that ideal is marred and suffering enters into our life. Now I don't point this out, this principle, that God promises suffering to minimise the suffering in the world or to suggest for a moment that God does. Not at all. It's immense and it causes great pain. But rather it begs the question, doesn't it, why? Why is this suffering and what is God doing about it? Well, we'll come back to those questions in point three. But for the moment, one answer to the question, why is there suffering in the world? The atheist would say there's no reason ultimately for suffering in the world. A second answer to that question is this. Suffering is our fault. It's your fault. This is the belief of two of the major world religions Now, karma is understood within both Hinduism and Buddhism as the fundamental, the universal law of cause and effect. So when a person does something, it has an effect. Good actions have good effects. Bad actions have bad effects. Even our thoughts have effects. And so an individual person carries around these accumulated effects or karma. And so any suffering that results or occurs in our life is... Due to our fault, it's either the actions that we have performed in the present or something indeed in a past life even from such a world view. So in October of 2009, uh, there was a small group from our church that went to visit Nantian Temple in Wollongong. Uh, we were preparing to go on a short-term mission trip to Thailand and understand Buddhism a bit more. So we went there and we had a guided tour uh, through the place. And our guide, Bob, uh, was a very devout Buddhist but not a monk. I was happy to answer lots of questions that we had as we went around the temple. And I guess the thing that's always hit me about Buddhism is this issue of karma and I guess the feeling that that can feel quite fatalistic, um, that there's this sense of suffering, this cycle of suffering that you just can't break. You can try to be a better person and perhaps in the future you'll receive less suffering. Perhaps you'll be reincarnated in a future life where you'll experience less suffering because of your efforts in this life. But there's this uncertainty of whether things will ever improve. And I actually asked Bob if Buddhism effectively taught that a person's experience of suffering was always due to their own actions, either in this life or a previous life. And he said to us, look, I know it sounds harsh, but the answer is yes. Yes. Now, such a way of thinking, I think it best leads towards a resigned acceptance of things. Now, the best known Buddhist in the world today would have to be the Dalai Lama. He's always tripping around, uh, giving talks. And I guess his view on this topic is one of acceptance. He stated this a few years ago. If you have fear of some pain or suffering, you should examine whether there is anything you can do about it. If you can, there is no need to worry about it. If you cannot do anything, then there is also no need to worry uh, you can see him saying that with a smile on his face. I mean, personally, though, I, I find there's, a, there's an acceptance, uh, an apparent peace about the situation. But I think it's depressing and it's certainly uh, guilt-inducing because I'm faced constantly with the fact that if I get cancer, if I'm injured in a natural disaster, well, it's only me who is to blame. It's my fault. There's no one to blame but myself and all I can do is simply try harder to live a better life and then hope that somehow in the future I'll face less suffering. But my future hope is fairly weak, I would argue, in such a world view. Now, let me say, Buddhists and Hindus are not alone in that view. I think at times uh, Jews and even Christians have been criticized for seeming to have their own version of karma, this cause and effect kind of universal law where they say, oh, that thing's happening in that person's life because they sinned yesterday and that has led to this. Well, Jesus addresses that understanding, that issue in several places in the Bible and Luke 13 is one of them. So let's have a look at that. Luke 13 verse one. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood piloted mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, "'Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners "'than all the other Galileans "'because they suffered in this way? "'I tell you, no, but unless you repent, "'you too will also perish. "'Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, "'do you think they were more guilty "'than all the others living in Jerusalem? "'I tell you, no, but unless you repent, "'you too will all perish.'" See, the mention of these two tragedies here in this little passage, one a political atrocity, it seems, and one just an accident, faulty engineering perhaps, um, leads the crowd to thinking that those who suffered got their just deserts. See, that was the default opinion, and it had been for many centuries in Jewish culture. In fact, deaths as shocking as being slaughtered in a religious service or as pointless as being crushed under some tower that just happened to fall down, well, that must have meant the people who died were very bad. But notice how Jesus contradicts that response. And the reason Jesus contradicts that response is because throughout the New Testament, what we see is God's response to human sin is largely to withhold his hand. He stores up any consequences of our sin for the final judgment at the end of the world. Yes, occasionally there's an Ananias and Sapphira whose uh, sins lead to um, sudden uh, actions or consequences in their life. But Christ's response here is that every person is a sinner. And our response to tragedy should be that we're called to repentance, that we're to turn back to God. Each one of us is going to suffer each one of us is going to die eventually. But the question is whether we will perish eternally. Will we reject God eternally? You see, when we see these tragedies of the world, not only should we not sit in judgment on the people who have suffered, but rather have great compassion towards them, but it should always always make us see that there's a warning here. It so easily could have been me. You know, 9-11 happens, and what are we to think? I need to be right before I meet my maker. I could have been in that building. So we need to make sure that we understand God's plans for this world. And that brings me to a third and final answer. Point three, a third way to answer this question. Firstly, the atheist might say there is no reason for suffering. Secondly, it's your fault. Karma is to blame. But thirdly, suffering is due to humanity's rejection of God. You see, in the Christian worldview, the foundational reason for suffering is humanity's rebellion. Although God created us to be in a right relationship with him, to be in perfect relationship with one another, although he placed Adam and Eve, the first humans, in an idyllic setting, the perfect Garden of Eden, they rebelled against his holy character and his commands. They went their way. And unfortunately, we've all participated in that same rejection of God's rule over us ever since. And this is what the Bible means by that short word sin. It's not simply you know, our actions that might be hurtful to another person. It's our throwing off of God's purposes for us. It's our alienating of ourselves from him as we say, look, I'm going to run my life my way. I'm in charge. And the result is that we live in a fallen world. Genesis 3, verses 16 to 19, what we had read for us earlier, explains the consequences of Adam and Eve's actions. And they're bad. Um, the Garden of Eden, the ideal, is out of reach. The right relationship we have with God is now broken. The good relationship we have with one another is severed. Suffering has entered the world. In addition, nature is cursed. It's subject to frustration, and so we see all of the natural disasters that have entered... More than that, death has now entered God's perfect creation. And so as we read in Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19, God says, "'Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return.'" And so that means that the Bible's answer ultimately to why suffering occurs is sin. But that doesn't mean, as I've already mentioned, that we can draw straight lines between an individual's suffering and some specific sin that they've committed in their life, as we've already seen in Luke 13. Now, sure, there's direct consequences at times. You know, somebody goes out, gets drunk, gets behind the car wheel and then has a crash and injures themselves, and they suffer. And we say, well, their suffering was a direct result of their actions, their failure. Sure, in such a case, we can see it all connected. But often suffering is experienced by the innocent bystander. Sometimes it's by the actions of somebody that we didn't even know. Sometimes we're part of a natural disaster and we just happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, as they say. It's a product of the fallen world that we live in, which has been marred because of humanity's rejection of God and what is good. See, if you were to play out to the nth degree this issue of, you know, a person suffers because of their individual actions, then we've got a big problem. Because in God's eyes, we all fall short of his perfect standard every single day. And if it were the case that God presented suffering to each person on the basis of their actions then there would not be one person one day of the year who would not be experiencing suffering. It would overwhelm us all constantly. But I guess even if we're accepting of what the Bible says on those points, there's a big question, isn't there? Is God, therefore, just simply looking down on the world in a very detached manner? Does he care about all the pain that people are going through all around the world? And if he does, then how do we see that? And is he acting in some way to help it? See, I think we might think on the basis of this third point that if God's existence is allowed, if his reason for suffering being in the world is a given, then all we have is a malevolent God, all powerful maybe, but not loving. Unless the Bible has something more to say on this issue of suffering to show us that God is not detached but truly empathizes with us. And yes, there is much more. Now, God is not detached at all. It's very personal for him, just as it is for us. How do we know this? Because he sent his son Jesus to live on this earth, to experience all of the trials that we face. See, Jesus came born as a baby, experiencing all the trials on earth, suffered. He was known as the suffering servant, and yet he came to defeat suffering, to defeat death. How did he do that? By entering into great suffering himself. He knows exactly the kind of things that we face. He's not somebody who walked around earth as some superman, never feeling the struggles that we endure. Not at all. The answer to his overcoming suffering and death was to lay down his own life. It seems counterintuitive to us. It makes perfect sense in the unfolding of God's word. You see, as you hear Jesus the night before he died in this harrowing scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where the closest people to him can't appreciate what he's about to face in the next 24 hours who are going to sleep on him. And as he cries out to his father and prays and says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, we see a man who knows what suffering is about. And in the next few hours, he's going to be falsely tried. He's going to be charged and beaten and scourged and crucified. And as the agony of six hours of hanging on a cross and struggling for breath, trying to hold himself up that he could breathe, as he cries out in some of his last words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see that here is someone who knows suffering. And he knows a suffering that we will never face. It's not that many others have not died a terrible death at the hands of others. No, it's been repeated over and over. But no one has died a terrible death while also taking on the sin and the suffering of the world that he might exhaust it and give life in the aftermath. No one has felt that. He not only faced difficult physical pain, but he faced the the Father's judgment on all of our sin, emotional, spiritual rejection by His Father as He dies as our substitute. And if that were the end of the story, His death, there'd be no Christian hope, there'd be nothing to say on the topic of suffering. But the key thing is what we celebrated just a couple of weeks ago that there is an Easter Sunday where Jesus rose from the dead, where he defeated suffering, death itself, put a deadline, a use-by date on this suffering world and announced that those who place their trust in him would one day escape this suffering world and be in a place that is not marred by sin, that is free from the struggles of this life. It's not like Christians haven't been hoping for 20 years that this suffering would end as well. We long for that suffering to come to an end. But the eternal hope is that we look forward to something greater. And that's why the Apostle John in Revelation 21 can say, you know, there will be a day when every tear is wiped from our eyes. There is a place where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And so we live now in the light of what is to come. And that eternal focus puts the suffering we face now into perspective. Look, if these things are true, if God has acted in this way, if this wonderful future hope exists, then how does that help us as we go through the inevitable ups and downs, as we try and encourage friends and loved ones, family members, as they face perhaps terrible things, even at this moment? Well, I want to say just a few things briefly as we close. Firstly, firstly, I think at times of suffering, indeed mourning, you know, words fail us. There's often nothing we have to give. Let me say to you at such a moment that your presence is the most precious thing. Just being with someone, acknowledging their pain, is super important. More than that, if we do want to utter words, I think one of the first things we can say is, I don't know why this happened. Because the truth of the matter is, so many of the things that unfold in this life are only understood by God. One day perhaps we'll know. But now we don't have the answers and we don't pretend to. We only have to point them to the person who does have the answers. Christ. And I think beyond that, we need to affirm what God's word says. Even in the worst of situations, God can be working out his purposes for good in the bigger picture Romans 8.28 the Apostle Paul says we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him you say well you don't know what I'm going through this week how can Paul write that? Paul can write that because he understands the cross (laughs) that was a moment as people looked where they just saw a humiliated suffering man die and thought there's nothing here and yet it was at that very moment that God was turning the world on its head, that suffering was being defeated, a new life was being born. Look, as we look forward, we need to have that eternal perspective. We know the struggles of this life, but the struggles of this life are temporary. And what is to come is eternal. And that place will never face the struggles that we now have. Will you pray with me?